You found the Digging Oak Island podcast, a podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. I have a terrible cold, but I want to thank you for listening and downloading. If you've been listening to and enjoying our little podcast, please help the show out by becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com slash Island to learn more. my tea in front of me. I've got the uh, mute button for my coughing and you're going to get an apology right away here. It's not going to be easy to get through this podcast. This has been coming for a couple of weeks. My uh, son brought us home a wonderful cold a couple of weeks ago. I have not been able to shake it and uh, I actually feel fine other than the fact that I can't talk very well. So uh, anyway, let's get right into the uh, podcast here. As always, let's start the show today with emails and messages from you guys, the listeners, so let's get right to it. Uh, We begin with a patron named Neil. Uh, First of all, Neil, thank you for being a patron. Uh, He says, I just figured it out, Duke, not pronounced duck, but Duke, as in Duke Donville, the French captain guy. And Neil, you are correct. He's referring to the title of last week's show which was our last week's episode of The Curse of Oak Island, which was a duke it out, and I couldn't figure out what duck it out means. Uh, the last couple of weeks, I found these puntastic titles uh, of the episodes to be somewhat confusing, to say the least. And yes, I thought it said duck it out. Uh, duck like the bird, you know. But duke makes a lot more sense. So I, suspo- I suppose spelling duke in the French, D-U-C, as opposed to D-U-K-E, is what threw me off. Again, just like last week, I should have figured this one out on my own. Um, this week's is actually a lot easier to figure out and probably just as bad. But anyway, thank you, Neil. Uh, as soon as I saw that, I'm like, of course, of course. All right, let's go to an email from Thomas who writes, I see the Garden Shaft project as a win-win. Even if they do not find the treasure, they've created a significant addition to Oak Island Tours. I paid 30 dollars to go into a meteor crater and would pay double that to go underground into the money pit. Best of all, the construction is most likely being paid for by the History Channel. You recently made a great point how they are cleaning up the island, and when the camera pans out in this season, you really get to see the island's beauty. Really hope they reintroduce those native oaks. Maybe that's the way this all ends. Marty has his Michigan vineyard, and Rick will have his Oak Island Bed and Breakfast Touring Company and Archaeological Research Center. Thomas. Uh, My friend, you bring up a great point here. Um... You know, uh, but I would perhaps advise maybe just a bit of caution when it comes to thinking that the garden shaft is being built as a tourist attraction. I mean, uh, uh, it remains to be seen whether what they're building here with the garden shaft is really a permanent structure. I mean, boy, the liability. (laughs) Jeez. I don't know. It may very well be something that'll last forever and will be very safe, but it's hard for me to conclude that at this point, I think. Let's see what it looks like uh, a little further on in the process, because, yes, that would be one heck of an addition to the island for just that very idea, right, to get people to go down in underground in the money pit. How exciting would that be? They are indeed slowly working towards what will become of the place when the television cameras are no longer there. They've been doing that for a couple of years. And let me just add this. I see absolutely nothing wrong with that concept. I mean, good for them. And your email, my friend, it would seem you would agree with me as well on that. You know, these guys have invested a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears over the years. If they don't find a treasure, 
Uh, you know, it behooves them to uh, not definitively say there is no treasure, right? But instead to uh, to say, uh, you know, anything is possible, right? And then that's really what they're doing. And I think that's the point of all this. Anyway, great stuff, Thomas. I hope to hear from you again. All right, let's go to the Patreon and a message from our friend Matt who says, Hey, Dave, I have been meaning to write you a message for a while now. First off, incredible job on the podcast. I love the more relaxed, freewheeling format this year. Quit being so hard on yourself and keep up the great work. Well, first of all, Matt, thank you very much. Uh, thank you for being a patron. Um, <clears throat> you know, today it might be a little more difficult. Uh, you know, I, I, I just don't like putting things out that aren't of the best quality that could be. Um, but I'm also trying to do my best to stay current with you guys and, and get these podcasts up every week and as, as quickly as I can, despite what I might sound like, be it because I'm unprepared, uh, with a scripted out thing, or be it because my throat isn't, uh, cooperating. Anyway, back to the email. As for this season, he writes, I am absolutely flabbergasted that the fellowship are claiming that the garden shaft is important to the search. They built a rock garden around the thing. Now they're claiming that they need to search it more aggressively. That is absolutely bonkers. I really have no other way to describe it. Bonkers. I still love the show. Don't get me wrong, but this season is killing me. Rick's pontificating seems forced. Gary's enthusiasm is over the top, and even Marty is getting on my nerves. At times, it seems like Laird is the only one on the island who is keeping his toes dipped in the pool of reality and common sense. Now, for the real reason for my message. It seems like every hole dug on the island hits water within 5 to 10 feet. Even with modern pumps and heavy-duty machinery, the team is overwhelmed by water. This is an honest question. How did the depositors deal with the flooding issues? There's no feasible method that I can figure out. I hate to admit it, but I think digging a deep hole on an island with such a high water table in the late, ninth, in late 18th century was almost impossible. It's been a long week. guess I'm just ranting, but I would love to hear your opinion. Matt. <laughs> well, Matt. I mean, rather than give you my opinion, let me give you the opinion of uh, a believer, right? Um, a, if you ask a believer in the treasure theory this question, what they would say is that the depositors didn't have to deal with the flooding because they are, in fact, the ones who invented the flooding. A believer would say the water underground is only there because of the booby trap flood system, which the initial searchers triggered, and no one since has ever been able to stop. Add to that things like the collapse of the money pit, all these shafts that have been dug out and collapsed over the centuries, uh, has caused the flooding to basically spread uncontrolled throughout the entirety of the underground area within the money pit. And that wouldn't be there were it not for the flood for the flood tunnels that were purpose built. So therefore, the initial depositors who created the flood tunnels didn't face this obstacle. And I suppose if the original booby trap were not activated, neither would anyone else. Now, I'm by no means an expert, nor am I saying I believe this theory is what is going on under there. I and mean, when I say an expert, I'm not an expert in underground water or anything like that. Um, just answering your question, really, about how anything could have been buried there in the first place. A true believer would also point to the fact that uh, this water they encounter is salt water and not fresh. So therefore, it would indicate that this water is not naturally occurring it's, uh, it's not a natural phenomenon, but instead part of this flood tunnel system that comes from the ocean. I know more than one scientist, however, who would disagree with that notion, but there you go. Uh, great stuff, Matt. Great question. Thank you so much. Let's stay on the Patreon uh, and hear from Jeff, who wrote, I'm enjoying the use of technology, sonar, LIDAR, muons, etc. The travel, bringing people in like Corey and Maul, and Jack having a more prominent role this season. 
They're giving us what we want. Maybe they are listening to your podcast. Uh, Jeff, I threw that one in there because, you know, I I, I want to not I, I want to make sure I put in because uh, you didn't write this as an email. You put I think you put this as a comment in one of the posts on the Patreon. I wanted to say this because I, I don't want to always sound negative about the show. You know, a lot of times people only write in because they have a gripe of some kind, which is absolutely fair. I have no problem with that. But I like when people write in things like this, too. And and I agree with you so far. So good in my mind. I, too, am a little skeptical about what results might come out of this whole garden shaft project, but I'm really looking forward to see how it gets done. Right. And with the Muon results coming, which we're going to talk about after the break and Corey and Maul's just absolutely fascinating research. I've been really pleased with the show so far. Um, anyway, great stuff, Jeff. And thank you to all the patrons who wrote in today, Jeff, Matt, and Neil from earlier. Thank you guys for supporting the podcast the way you do. It means the world to us. It really does. Um, I can't thank you enough. Okay. Now let's go to an email from Mike who says, Dave, in last week's podcast, you stated that your excitement level about the garden shaft all depends on how you feel about Dr. Spooner's research. You are absolutely correct. I believe that to be true not only of the garden shaft, but every item Dr. Spooner has weighed in on during his time on the show. Since he first dated, and he puts dated in quotes, the swamp, I've been skeptical. When he estimated the age of the cobblestone road based on the carbon-dated age of an embedded stick, I questioned his methods. But when he stated unequivocally that there is a Billy Gerhard dump truck load of silver buried in the money pit area, then when asked about the presence of gold, he replied without hesitation that gold could not be detected using the same water sampling method. I'd had enough. I believe we learned in a subsequent episode that, lo and behold, gold could be detected by testing water samples. Shouldn't a geoscientist know that? At what point is the go is the goal as the good doctor's expert opinion no longer going to be accepted as scientific fact? With all due respect, it honestly seems to me that Dr. Spooner tends to say whatever he thinks the Laginas and the Curse of Oak Island producers want to hear. That ensures that they continue to use him as an expert in his field and solidifies his position among the Fellowship of the Dig, i.e. paid cast members. Please don't get me wrong, I'm a huge fan of the show. I've watched every episode some multiple times since season one. No one wants them to find an amazing treasure more than me. And I do not question the Lagina sincerity in wanting to find the one thing. But I find it interesting that the Laginas, especially Marty, accept anything Dr. Spooner feeds them as gospel after his can't detect gold in the water miscue. Perhaps when the show concludes, the History Channel will give skeptics like geologist Gordon Fader and Scott Walter the opportunity to present their findings, professional opinions, and historical insights. In closing, I applaud you for providing a forum where people with varying viewpoints can express their opinions about the show. Thank you for allowing me to do so here. A frustrated Curse of Oak Island fan. Well, thank you, Mike, uh, for taking the time to write all of that. Um, and your criticism, Dr. Spooner, and his conclusions certainly seem well thought out. And now what we'll say is they are well and truly on the record here, right? And I honestly wouldn't take issue with anything you said there. The only thing I would add is just to caution you that the editing often does a lot of messing around with what these experts are really saying. Um, the producers do everything they can to make these folks sound more certain of some mysterious finding than they often truly are and oftentimes chop up things so it sounds like he's saying things that maybe he really wasn't intending to say. So I guess how I would respond here is by saying um, 
just like I said with the garden shafts, let's, let's just give it a little more time, right? If in the long run they find the source of gold he claims or silver, whatever it is, if they find such a source, then we know that his research was correct, you know? Um, and if they ever get back to the stone road, maybe we can do a little bit different kind of dating on that and get back to that. Who knows? All the other stuff, I think um, we could chalk up to bad editing and go from there. And let me also say that while I respect your criticism, and I think they make a ton of sense, I just don't feel like I'm personally in a position to argue with someone who knows way more about the subject than I do. And I would actually be more comfortable in having him here speaking for himself and actually arguing with him. Then uh, if I, you know, then to just take issue with what ends up after it's gone through the mill of an editor on a uh, television show. I, I mean, <clears throat> I just don't, I'm just not ready to take him to task yet on that stuff. I think the work he's done is fairly good. Does he seem now to be leaning more towards the believer side of things? Well, uh, what my, my answer to that is that's the way the editor and the producers seem to make it out. But I don't know if that's actually true. All right, now let's finish up with an email from Chris, a certified arborist who wrote us last week to talk about the iron objects Gary pulled out of a fairly deep hole on lot 32. I asked him a few questions and he responded with the following. Regarding the buried tree, I'm saying it's obvious to me as a trained observer of trees that someone has added soil to this site. And recently, I'm not saying the artifacts were planted. My guess would be that they did some general site restoration work as they have spoken on restoring the island from years of work, of storms, of erosion, etc. Perhaps this site was cleared and leveled recently. I can't say for certain why soil was added. If they have added one foot of soil to the site for restoration purposes, then an artifact found at two feet of depth, that means that prior to the fellowship performing such site restoration, adding soil on top of the roots of an existing tree up to its first branches, then planting a new tree adjacent to the existing tree at the new grade, the artifacts would have been only one foot deep. Ultimately, my observation leads me to believe that the depth at which metal, de which metal detected artifacts are found cannot provide any empirical data regarding this mystery, not misleading us that they found something, just misleading us about the true depth of the find because they have altered the site themselves for non-treasure related purposes. Hope this clarifies my observation. Just another acorn that's nuts about Oak Island. Folks, go back and listen to the first section of last week's podcast if you want to hear what he wrote. Basically, he's talking about those pieces of iron found in episode four, I guess, that were kind of a little deeper. And right on the beach, you can see that spot where by a tree, they're overlooking the water there. That's what he's referring to. What he's saying is that these, according to his expertise, this is a site that has been manipulated in some way, shape, or form for whatever purpose it might be. Uh, and he takes umbrage with the idea that it was found at an incredible depth or things like that because it's, according to his expertise, again, um, might not be completely true. <laughs> anyway, thank you, Chris, for your expertise and for pointing this all out for us. If you ever feel the need to add any more to this stuff, please don't hesitate to write any more. You know, I've also heard some people talking about how this looked almost like a spoils pile, but your your conclusions here make a little more sense to me because we know they've done a lot of cosmetic work all over the island. Now, and also having said that, we've caught them misleading us many times before. And by them, I mean the producers. It appears, Chris, from what you're saying here, uh, that you've caught them again. That's for sure. All right. 
I need to take a break. Got to give my voice a break. That's it for all the emails this week. Remember, if you have any comments or questions, just email me at digginoakisland at gmail.com. All right, before we get started with the review of this week's episode, let me just mention again our Patreon page, folks. Um, Throwing the podcast takes time and money, so I really need your help with that, and uh, therefore I would humbly ask that you please consider becoming a patron of our show. If you think this podcast is worth five bucks a month to you, then go to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash Island, and sign up to become a patron. Patrons get exclusive access to a live chat during the U.S. broadcast of each new episode of The Curse of Oak Island, and that chat is just so much fun. So come and join us. Uh, again, go to patreon.com slash Island to sign up and support the podcast. And remember, it's only five bucks a month, and you can cancel any time. And also, if you prefer, you can make a one-time donation to the podcast via Venmo. Just use the username at Dave McBride Music. And let me just send a Billy Gerhardt dump truck full of thanks to Bradley for his incredibly generous donation this week. Uh, sir, I can't thank you enough. From my family to yours, thank you. Happy holidays, my friend. And again, just thank you so much for being here and supporting us. All right. It's time to discuss Season 10, Episode 6 of The Curse of Oak Island called Over the Muon. Again... If it's a joke, uh, <clears throat> it's a bad one. I get this one, but it's certainly not one to be proud of if you're the comedy writer here. All right, let's get through uh, the Money Pit area. There's really only two areas we talked about today, the Money Pit and Lot 8, which is new for this this uh, season. Uh, what we see here is the core drilling operations continuing as they're poking holes in the ground now with the idea of trying to follow a tunnel I guess this began with the idea of trying to follow the water testing, which they're still doing, but now they're trying to find this tunnel. Uh, and at the same time, Rick Lagina is meeting with the guys from Dumas uh, Contracting, I guess it's called. These are the guys who are rebuilding the garden shaft, uh, and they're just sort of getting an update on all this. Uh, he writes, uh, or he says, Rick, quote, I would love the garden shaft to be the original money pit. Uh, but he doesn't think it is. That's the end of the quote, by the way. But he doesn't think it is, um, or he thinks it's a long shot. That's the kind of the impression that I got. Uh, but at least it's kind of a little insight into Rick's thinking on all this. The interesting thing here that I got is that we are now confirmed that the quote-unquote planned depth of this new garden shaft rebuild is 80 feet. Now, I'm not sure why. Uh, when I asked this question on the Patreon, I got a response from this. It came from Ginger, who said simply they are sure of an offset chamber. Uh, I hope you're right, Ginger, because it's it's confusing depth because um, <clears throat> obviously the original money pit was deeper than 80 feet. Uh, obviously, the original money pit collapsed, making it even deeper than that. They didn't call it the 90 foot stone for nothing. They obviously went down past 80 feet. But also, just in sort of more of a modern look, uh, these tunnels that they're looking to follow towards the garden shaft are lower than 80 feet. It's just kind of confusing to me. Anyway, <clears throat> I'm sure it'll all shake out in the wash. It's one of those things, again, that we always talk about. We only get sort of bits and pieces of what's really happening here. At, later on in the show, we see a new borehole N.5-17.5 being drilled. 
Uh, later in the show, Terry says the borehole had encountered a tunnel at 99 feet to 103 feet. Again, there's that number, 103 feet, where the tunnel is not 80 feet. They take a quick break. They come back with a new hole, 4.25-14.4, I think it was. And it's now being drilled 45 feet to the northwest of the previous hole. So they're really kind of widely poking around here in this area. Um, Again, these guys find wood at 103 feet. And uh, the drillers come and report to Terry uh, Terry Matheson that there was a drop from 99 feet to 103 feet, indicating, again, a four-foot tunnel. Now, um, Steve's conclusion here is that there might be two separate tunnels, Steve Guptill, that they might actually be looking at two separate tunnels that they're now tracking. So the next time we see these guys sort of get together, they're in the research center, and Steve has this all plotted out on these maps. I love when he does things like that, although the map is a little confusing. Um, What he's telling them here is that the problem to follow, I guess, this new idea of this new tunnel is that the muon detectors, which you, they show you pretty pretty uh, clearly here, are these big concrete things in the ground. Um, they can't be messed around with. You can't get too close to them. So they're kind of getting in the way of the idea of exploring this new tunnel. So they sort of sit around and talk about what a new spot that they can possibly drill. And Rick locates one that maybe they can go without affecting this muon stuff too much and maybe get an idea of where this tunnel, if this tunnel continues to this location. I don't want to get too far into all the locations and all that kind of stuff because it's kind of hard to follow, but you see it on those images, what they're basically what they're doing here. Again, back to the live Patreon discussion. Jeff has some great questions. He writes, not sure why they wouldn't just drill the next hole where the tunnel projects out on the other side of the circle rather than proceed inside of it. You'd think they wouldn't want to jeopardize those muon tests, especially in that area. I wonder if the two tunnels on top of each other could be one for going into the money pit and the other for going out of the money pit. All good points, my friend. I guess this is just going to have to be a wait and see on this. Uh, And again, it's hard for me to look at these images and know exactly what they're talking about with uh, these locations. They're definitely not plotted for the uh, average viewer to understand, more for Steve and the team to kind of get into the weeds with. We don't get to see this new borehole being drilled, so I suppose that's for next week. The end of the money pit for this week comes when Irving Equipment Limited brings in a giant crane for Dumas uh, to use. I asked the question on the Patreon, uh, why doesn't the company that specializes in mining shafts own a crane? Uh, again, and Paul writes back, most mining doesn't require a crane. Paul, here's the thing. As you know right there from my Patreon uh, comment, I know nothing about mining. All right, let's head now over to Lot 8. This is sort of the middle of the island. It is the western Drumlin, but it's the northwestern side of the island, uh, more center than west. Uh, you see it on the on the, on the the maps there. Uh, we see Gary and Jack metal detecting, as they are wont to do. Um, they find a couple of links of old chain at first. Uh, and then Jack asks one of the my favorite questions I think ever asked, Um, he writes, he asks, quote, what would a chain that thin be used for? 
Huh, Jack, I think you probably could have answered that yourself. Um, there are a lot of possibilities uh, that don't include the Knights Templar, but be that as it may. Uh, later, as they continue to dig, they find a broken up kind of copper green colored piece of something. <clears throat> this is a kind of an interesting piece, certainly different from the other things that you're seeing. Now, they take this piece to the Interpretive Center and they show it to Rick and Craig and Laird and Emma, who are the archaeologists there. Laird says that his first thought is that it's military, but he doesn't, but we don't get to see why he thinks that. This is one of those frustrating things about the editing. Um, now, it ends up being that he comes off that, as we'll see in a bit, but I would like to have at least heard if he thinks it's military, why? Does he think it's something in particular? Is there something about the, 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 uh, the way it's constructed? Just, we get nothing. We just get that. It looks like it might be military. Emma drops the artifact into the XRF machine, which is the thing that gives it your metal content. Um, and they get, you know, basically confirmed that it's mostly copper, which we can tell pretty much from the, from the, uh, from the color there. Then Laird puts it into the CT scanner to get a better look, which takes some time, so we don't see that right away. Instead, we come back later and we see the CT scan results that show really kind of great details. And the interesting thing is um, Laird says that it's been folded three times over. And Jeff on the Patreon commented, I'd like to see them try to unfold that artifact. The added surface space and visibility could unveil more symbols and prove helpful in identifying the piece. And I agree. Once I saw that, I was a little confused as to why that wasn't attempted. Um, even to break it and separate it, I guess, you know, to be able to look at it. I don't know. They don't, again, we get so little about this stuff. It's, it, it's difficult really to, uh, to, to, to gleam what might come out of it. And, and I know that there are some, you know, what we can tell from looking at it is a couple of things. First, I'm a little confused by what the, fibrous things are on the top and the bottom. I'll put a picture of it on the Facebook page for you guys to see um, and get a better look. I'm not really sure. Uh, Lori on the Patreon says that it looks more like grass that got folded into the piece as opposed to man-made strings or fibers. I think that's probably true, Lori, but if I look at that picture a little closer, the thing is I'm kind of seeing some of these fibrous things holding the same color. I just don't know why that would be. I, I, I'm a little confused by it. There's no conversation about it. Anyway, be that as it may, we definitely get a good look at the symbols. Now, Ginger on the Patreon discussion said, those symbols remind me of Phoenicians. Now, hang on to that, Ginger, because I think they do, they remind me of that as well, but they obviously reminded other people of something else. And I'll get that in just a second. Anyway, um, none of the archaeologists, there's three of them there, right? There's Helen and Emma and, and Laird. None of them think that this is modern. And also none of them really have a good guess as to what it might be, right? They have no idea. Uh, Laird mentions that he no longer thinks that it's military, but does suggest that it could come from some clothing, which is what made me think about those fibrous things on there. Uh, that's what made me wonder if that could be, uh, you know, that could be what that is, that, that those are fibers that connect it to whatever the clothing is that it's part of. Who knows? Later on in the episode, we get a video call with a person named Dr. Edwin Barnhart. Now, remember when I mentioned Ginger before, talking about the Phoenicians, 
Dr. Barnhart is part of something called the Maya Exploration Center. I think he's the director of it. He's the president of the, of the board of directors. The Maya Exploration Center, Maya Exploration Center, is, according to their own website, just so I'm not making this up here, is a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of ancient Maya civilizations. So I think just by calling this guy, even though we do not discuss this even one bit, we don't mention this even in the slightest, you could see that someone, be it Laird Niven, be it Rick Lagina, who knows, felt that those symbols on there were indeed Mayan or American, at least of some kind, ancient uh, from the Americas, ancient indigenous peoples, right? Which is the reason why this doctor, Barnhart, points out that it is not from the Americas. Now, what they do here with the editing is very interesting. They make it seem as though it's not from the Americas, so therefore it must be from Europe and it must be from far away, as if that was the great reveal. But I think really the great reveal is someone somewhere along the line said to these guys, these designs on here look like they might be Mayan. Find an expert in that. And they did find that expert and that expert burst their bubble and said, I'm sorry, no, it's not Mayan. I don't know what it is, <laughs> right? Let's get right down to it. That's what this scene is all about. He does say some interesting things. He says that the pattern is quote unquote purely geometric. And what that means is that it doesn't help to identify it. But the point he's making here is that geometric patterns are universal. It could be from anywhere in the world. You're, you'll find geometric patterns used uh, in symbology all over the world. So there's no way to even kind of make it seem more uh, European or whatever, not, not from what we're seeing. And again, he does mention that the materials that it's that are used to make it suggest that it's not from the Americas. His best guess is that it was used to cover an object as a decoration. He called it, quote unquote, an, orn an ornate metallic cover to an object. What I would say is this is a fascinating piece of of. Um, you know, a fascinating artifact, certainly really interesting and very different from some of the things they found. But at this point, we've gone through a bunch of experts. We've seen some great pictures and we have no idea what it is. Nobody can even formulate a decent opinion. All they can do is give you their best guess. And Laird didn't even stick with his best guess for any more than a scene or two. So nobody knows what this is be fascinating to see if we can come back to this at the end of the season if we actually do have any real answers on what this object might be. Folks, thank you so much for sticking with me today. I'm sorry about the voice. Again, I feel perfectly fine. I just lost my voice uh, from a cold that I've been fighting for literally weeks. Uh, anyway, thank you for listening. That's going to do it for this episode of Digging Oak Island. Don't forget, you can help out the show by becoming a patron. Uh, if you think the show is worth five bucks a month to you, head over to patreon.com slash Island to learn more. And if you want to make a one-time donation, you can do that uh, via Venmo. Just use the username at Dave McBride Music. Also, if you'd like to help out the podcast in another way, 
then you could do so by giving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And a big thank you to everyone who's done that. We need some more, though, guys. Get on there. If you're listening, you want to help out, just give us a five-star rating. Thank you so much in advance. And to everybody who's done that, thank you. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. We're at Digging Oak Island. I use Facebook a lot more. Uh, I use Twitter kind of to talk about sports. <laughs> Uh, but I do try to post things on Twitter, at least when the show comes out and all that kind of stuff. And if you have any comments or questions, uh, you can send them to me. I do so via email, diggingoakisland at gmail.com or through direct message through either one of those social platforms. Um, and just keep in mind, if you do send me a message, I might answer it here on the podcast. So if you don't want your message read to the audience, just make a note of that. Well, I can tell you, man, it is crown time today. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Diggin' Oak Island. Sun and the sea, the sand and the breeze. If I could find a spot for me, the palm tree. Nothing to do, just you and the view. A bar down the beach for a drink or two. It's the only thing I want to see. It looks a lot like home to me. No one said simple It's just a broken heart away I don't want to wait till I'm sinking So there's nothing left to say Let's take a flyer A treetop flyer One that leaves from Simpson Bay The sun and the sea The sand and the breeze If I can find a spot beneath the palm tree Nothing to do, just you and the view A bar down the beach for a drink or two It's the only thing I want to see It looks a lot like home to me It's time to breathe again It's time to sing Time to dance beneath the waves We've come all this way for just this reason To live it all again It's so much better here, so goddamn simple To live it all again The sun and the sea, the sand and the breeze If I could find a spot beneath the palm tree Nothing to do, just you and me down a beach for a trick or two The only thing I want to see Looks a lot like home to me Thank you.